Okay, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, from page 594, if you are uh, studying in, uh, in the Pew Bible. I'm going to read just um, a few verses, the first, the first four verses, to be honest. And I'm going to read it as if I was reading from the NIV, <laughs> only I'll be reading it from the New King James Version. So if you've got a New King James Version, it'll, all the words will be there, but they'll be in different places. If you're looking at it in the NIV... It's exactly the same, but there'll be decent words uh, as well. So, let's just put you in the picture. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And read that last little bit again. Um, concerning his Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if you remember, Paul, uh, who is um, writing this book, is introducing his subject to us. You know, like a good author, he's putting up front what it's all going to be about, and he's introducing us to the characters and the, the characteristics of his message. And the subject of his message. And in particular, we have this word gospel. I said he's got it there in uh, the first verse. That he wants us to understand the gospel of God. You know, we saw last week that the gospel of God isn't a system of beliefs. It's not a way of conducting ourselves. It's got nothing to do with our behavior. It's nothing at all to do with our discipline. In fact, the gospel, in essence, has nothing at all to do with us. It's all for us. Not about us, but for us. You know, when God was forming this gospel um, in the eternity past, it was all about what He was going to do for us. You know, and um, we saw that Paul sort of Bucks the trend uh, in the world today. Uh, there are so many religions, there are so many gospels that we could go out and uh, try and discover or uh, study, and we would see them all as a system of something or another a system of teaching, a system of discipline, a system of morals. A system of this and a system of that. There's, um, behavior is very important in religion. You want know, sometimes Christians are accused of not behaving properly. Not behaving like a Christian. And do you know it's possible to not believe in Jesus and still be considered a Christian in the community because of your lifestyle. So there are so many gospels and, uh, and religious systems and, yet, and they all revolve around something but Paul says that the gospel revolves around someone. It's someone with us. And that's the most important part 
of our faith. It's based in someone. It's based in a person. Here we see that He is God's Son. God's Son is the person around whom the whole of the Gospel revolves. You know, another thing that Paul bucks the trend in is the fact that this person is actually essential to the Christian faith. Because without him, there is no Christian faith. You know, and that's different with all the other faiths. You know, we can go to all the other ones. Buddhism. Do we need Buddha? For Buddhism, of course we don't. Buddha can, uh, can not ever have existed. What we want from Buddha is his teachings and his disciplines. Confucius. Do we need Confucius for, uh, to go through that type of religion? Of course we don't. He just happened to be the one who had all the, the wisdom and brought the wisdom. Now we are more motivated by his wisdom. We don't need Confucius. We don't need any of these people. But when it comes to Jesus, take him away. Take him away from our faith. And what have we got? We've got nothing at all. Christianity collapses in dust. And, and if Jesus isn't God and isn't man and hasn't done what he said he did and what he proved to do in the scriptures. So Paul bucks the trend by introducing a person. He bucks the trend by saying that he is absolutely essential to our faith. Because he is the center of our faith. You know, we notice also the gap. As I, you know, as I've already pointed out in reading the scriptures, the gap in our text between the word son and the words Jesus Christ. If, you re- if you're looking at the, the New King James Version, you will notice that I put a, an old sentence in between the word son and the word Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it's the gap. It sh- that's how it should be written. That's why the NIV has come up trumps with the, uh, the way that it's written. I say they fell down with other stuff, but of course it's, uh, that's um, an opinion. You know, we noticed uh, the gap between the word Son and the word, and the words Jesus Christ, and it gave us an amazing sentence to think about. A sentence that fully sums up, if you like, the nature of this essential person, the nature of Christ, a nature that is demanded if he is to be our saviour, you see we know don't we from other studies and from our understanding of Christianity that Jesus has to be fully God he's not a demigod as the Jehovah's Witnesses would, would, uh, would tell us he's not a man who became God as the Mormons would try and tell us, but he must be fully God in every aspect of his being. Even when he walked the earth, he was fully God in every aspect of his being. And his nature demands that because we need a perfect sacrifice. And the Bible tells us very plainly that there is only one who is good. Only one who is good. And that is God. And if the sacrifice is going to achieve anything, then he has to be God. He has to be God. And then of course we know at the same time, he has to be fully man. And we saw that last week, that we uh, realized that as God, he couldn't save us. It's impossible for God the Son to save us as God the Son. 
He had to become a man in order to have blood, in order to give a sacrifice of blood as an atonement for our sin. So this little verse that we have between uh, the word son and the word Jesus Christ is the, what defines him as our saviour. Because we see here that he is fully God in every aspect of his, of his being and he is fully man in every aspect of his humanity. You know, and we, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to start to look at these two natures. The natures of Christ. Now you can't say that about anybody else. I said, uh, that's, that is a unique statement. We're going to talk about the natures of um, Jesus Christ. Starting with the phrase, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, I think that this is the doctrine above all doctrines that will either blow you away or leave you cold. Did God really come as a true human being? And how will we recognize him if he does? That's a big, big question. Did he come as a full human being? And how on earth will we recognize him if he does? No, and we know only too well how important such questions are in our day, in our time. No churches today are gripped between the jaws of secularism on the one hand, which holds, holds Christ in total contempt. You know, our secular society says, what do we care about Christ? He doesn't exist. Or if he did, he's not who he said he is. He is a non-entity. You know, and when you go out into the community, the aspect of Christ that thrills us so much is missing all around. You know, when you check out all the, the conversations that people have, the entertainments that people have, you know, in fact, we, we can say to me that the only uh, sort of relevance that Jesus Christ actually has in our secular society today is that we can use him to, to emphasize, you know, in an inexplicative way, uh, something that we are saying. And it's awful to hear his name uh, maligned in such a way. But to others, to, to them, he is a total non-entity. And yet on the other hand, the other jaw of this vice that is squeezing the Christian church today is that um, there is a, a great deception that has come upon the church to, that says or describes Christ as all things to all men. Now whatever you want Christ to be, he is. You know, that's a, a, a wonderful way to go through life. Whatever Christ is, Whatever Christ you need, here he is. You know, you can make him up in your own image. You can do what you want to with him. He's like plasticine. We can form him in any image we want to. And when you go through the churches in the world, you will find really strange models of Christianity. Why? Because Christ, to them, is anything you want him to be. And I read so much about what's taking place in the world today, and I am aghast as to how far people will go to disfigure the person of Christ in order to live the life 
but they please to live. So there we have the one hand, secularism. On the other hand, we have deception. And we must stand as the church between these two lines, holding the uniqueness of Christ, of Christ's origin, of Christ's nature. We've got to hold the efficacy of his once and for all sacrifice. We've got to hold strong to his sovereignty and to his authority. And to the fact that one day, Every one of us will have to give an account to that person. That person who is a non-entity to some. And a swear word on their lips. Or a, a disfigured person to others. Who is moulded in all different kinds of images. And yet here we are. Worshipping this person. Giving him glory and honour because he is our God. And he is our saviour. Because he is God and he is man. That's why it's important. For us to understand who he is. We gotta hold him aloft. And that's why I prayed in my prayer that the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to give us boldness. Because wherever we hold him aloft, whether it's in the secular world, they will scorn us. Whether it's in the the liberal church, they will mock us. But we've got to stand firm because this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that he's God. The Bible says that he's man. And in that, the, that per, those natures of, of man and God in one in Christ, he was able to bring salvation to those who put trust in his name. We have to be confident. Confident. We have to know what we believe. And just as essential, we have to know why we believe it. And that's why we are looking at the book of Romans. We have to know what we believe and we have to know why we believe it. Now I want us to notice a number of important things from our text tonight. And the first is that Jesus is God's eternal everlasting son. Amen. You know, Paul is not pulling any punches. He's not saying, I think so. Perhaps, maybe. No, he's saying, this is God's son. This is how he says it, isn't it? This is how he opens out his book separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his holy through the, his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son his son so God isn't uh, confused at all God is up there with understanding that Jesus is Paul isn't confused he knows as well that Jesus is God's eternal and everlasting son you know, this is no man who has, through effort and enlightenment, achieved divinity. Because that's how an awful lot of people are, um, are preaching today and always have done. Ever since the first century, people have preached that Jesus was a mere man who, through enlightenment and understanding and morality and following the, the wisdom that was there of his day, made it into divinity. He's a, a, a local boy made good or made God, he could say. You know, this is something that is propagated by the Mormons, of course. That's what they believe, that Jesus was a mere man, born of human parents, and yet made his way up the ladder to divinity. You see, Jesus is not our example of how to climb this supernatural ladder. He's not that. He didn't come to show us a, a way to be God. Follow me. 
I made it. Get on the get in my slipstream and go with me because I'm getting to the top. That's not what Jesus is to me. That's not what Jesus is to Paul. You know, Jesus has somehow made it to this celestial identity and therefore we can too. No, he is the Son. The Son of God. He always was the Son. The Son of God. And he ever will be the Son. John tells us, of course, didn't he, in, in, in his first uh, chapter of his, of his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And this is it, the Word was God. Was God. In the beginning, before anything else was made, here is the Godhead in eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here he is called the Word of God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the Son in a way that no one else can be. You you, You and I are called sons of God. And it's a great title to have. Because it means that we're in the family of God. And for us he is our Father. You and you, there's this filial relationship that you and I enjoy every moment of our lives and one day we will see him face to face. And we will spend eternity with him because we're in this forever family of God. We are sons of God. But he is the only, the only, the only begotten son of God. And there is no one else like him. No one comes Anywhere near this person is unique, being the only begotten Son of God. You know, Mark starts his gospel with an assured uh, proclamation. This is what he says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. This announcement appears, I suppose, in the writings of all the apostles. None of them had any sort of inkling that he was anything less than God. It took a long time for him to get there. You know, as, as you would expect. You know, it's not every day you get up and, uh, in your fishing boat and see God walking on the beach. You know, that have never happened to me. I've never seen God walking on the beach. And therefore, when Peter saw Jesus walking on the beach, he wasn't to know that this was God. You know, but you listen to his writings. And you'll find out that somewhere along the line this revelation came to him. In fact, he said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This revelation came to him. That you, he's in the presence of Almighty God. John as well. No, did John see Jesus as God when he saw him on the shores of Galilee? Of course he didn't. But there came a time when revelation hit home and he understood. You know, there was a time when he fell at the feet of God. Because it's, it's such an awesome sight. And he is. And that's what he says. He, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this announcement appears uh, in the writings of all the apostles. This is the stance that they start from. And there's no debate. I love the fact that uh, Moses, I suppose, he did, yes, Moses... Uh, he just says in the first line of the Bible in the beginning God you know there's no description there's no definition there's no um, debate that's his stance you know and you pick the Bible up and you know where you are straight away you know you know what this book is going to be about it's going to be about 
God. God. God created everything. God sustains everything. God redeems with His precious blood. God will wrap up. God will usher in eternity. God will judge. It's all about God. You know what? Moses wasn't ashamed that he was writing a book about God or God's book. You know what? These men, they're not ashamed that when they talk about Jesus, they are talking about the same God as Moses spoke of so many years before. There's no debate. There's no wavering. Jesus Christ is God. And so we go on in our verse tonight. We'll see it. That Jesus is described uh, to be the Son of God by the resurrection. But you notice also that this is a, a declaration of who He is and not what He has become. You see, another um, problem that some people have is that they think the resurrection was the moment when Jesus became God. You know, when you, if you read that casually, you might get that idea. But the resurrection, the resurrection, yes, it has made him God. It has separated him from his human nature, and now he's got this divine nature. But no, no, he was God before he came. He was God before this came. Creation came. He is always God. He is declared to be who he is, not what he has Become. You see, the resurrection is not the final piece of Christ's ascent into divinity. The resurrection simply and truly proves the claims that he made during his ministry. Now, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about that next week when we talk about the deity uh, of Christ. He is the Son. But as you read this passage of Scripture there's an amazing change that is actually taking place. Something that has got to blow our minds. This eternal Son, who has remained in the bosom of the Father for all eternity past, is about to become. And that's what this the, uh, little phrase means. Is about to become. To become what? Well, not to become the Son of God, because He always has been. But now He is about to become out of the seed of David. Something is happening. Something is happening. Who was born out of the seed of David. John puts it quite similarly when he says, The Word was God, but became flesh. Philippians 2 says, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Something amazing is taking place. The greatest change that eternity has ever experienced. The greatest change that eternity has ever seen. You see, the trans a transaction has taken place. God has become man. The Creator has took the form of the creature. You know, and that is, well, I can't use, I can't think of words to describe what this actually means. 
No, we, uh, it brings us to the Christmas story, of course. Because all, this all happened and came to pass in time. And there were people there to log down what was taking place. And when you think about it, that stable, on that night, humanity lay in a manger. Humanity lay in a manger. A baby, just a, a plain and simple baby, who depended upon his mother's milk, who needed her help to survive the trauma of a human experience. We all do. We, I know we live in a very, very civilized society, but we still need our mother's milk. We still need help to bring us through the trauma. No, in fact, we are, as uh, human beings, the most dependent upon our parents than any other creature on earth. It sets us apart as being different. You know, when you think about all the other sort of animals, the pups and the, uh, the lambs and that, yes, they have a moment or two where they are dependent. But then you see them getting on their feet. And then you see them running about. You know, a child, a child is unable to look after himself, incapable of surviving himself until he's way up, way up uh, in, in years. And here is Jesus needed his, his mother to survive the trauma of the human experience. You know, and as we read on in the, the Christmas story, we can see that he grew as you and I do. Then he went down from them. Uh, remember when he came back from the temple when he was 12? And his parents had been looking for him. And uh, they were on their way home. And this is what he says. And, they went down, and he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was subject to them but his mother kept all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom just like we do and in stature just like we do and in favour with God and with men increased in favour with God and men no we know don't we that through his life he hungered he experienced thirst. He experienced pain and sadness. He bled when you cut his skin. This was no phantom. This was no apparition. He was real. He was a real human being. You know, even after his resurrection, he invited his disciples to touch him. Behold my hands and my feet. That it is me. It's I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So many arguments have been made that would try to tell us that Jesus was but a phantom. Other people would say that Jesus was a man and God filled him with himself until he went to the cross and then God left him and he died. And yet when we look at this, we can see that before he ever came to the cross, he was a man. And even after the death, he was a man. He had flesh and he had bones. And they could touch him. 
and see that he was real. Behold my hands and my feet, it is me, it's me. Here I am. Handle me and see it. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You know when we talk about the flesh. The flesh. You know we must understand that it goes further than just this bit. This body bit. To be in the flesh. To have a body like you and I. You must also have a soul. A human soul. And some people have said that Jesus was just a body. But he wasn't. He was a man. And he had a soul. And he had a will. And he had a purpose. And he had an understanding. And an intellect. And a wisdom. And an emotional part of him as well. You know when he looked out at the crowds. He was moved with compassion. You know a, a sort of a, a body will not be moved with compassion. But he was. Because he's got a soul. Because he is perfectly human. He feels. He has compassion. He is loved. Or he loves. You know, and nowhere is this seen more clear than when he faced the agony of the cross. As he lay prostrate on the Gethsemane floor. And this is what it says. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit you while I go pray over there. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful. And deeply distressed. He was a man. Who had a soul. Now those words don't compute. Unless you've got a soul. He was deeply distressed. And he said to them. <coughs> My soul. Is exceedingly sorrowful. Even to death. Stay here. And watch with me. He had a soul. He was human to the very core. You know, they said humanity lay in a manger in Bethlehem. But never forget that deity also lay in that same manger. He was God. Even in the manger, he is God. You know, and when those shepherds came in and looked into those babies' eyes, they were looking into the eyes of God himself what an amazing moment for anyone to look into the eyes of God himself because you was God in the flesh visible for the first time no one had seen God before the angels had never seen God no one had seen God he's invisible Bible says he is spirit and he is invisible. And yet on that day, when he became flesh, Mary saw him for the first time. In fact, it's probably right to say that either Mary or Joseph, perhaps, if Joseph did the delivering, that Joseph was the first human being ever, or the first being ever to see God. Isn't that amazing? Mm. He was not visible until this moment. And here he is, lying in a manger. His eyes looking up. And here are the shepherds coming in, looking deep into the eyes of God himself. What did John say? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. 
But then secondly, and lastly, <coughs> notice how Paul describes his humanity who was born of the seed of David. Why is this important? Why is uh, Paul uh, bringing this little phrase to us tonight as we come to a close? You know, the key word for me is the word seed. He was born of the seed, out of the seed of David. Do you know humanity as an innumerable membership? The only, way, the only thing you've got to do to join humanity's uh, club is to be born. And when we look out on the, our world today, I think there are 7 billion people. 7 billion people. Now I know that um, there weren't 7 billion people 2,000 years ago, but there was an awful lot of people about even then. And over the, the 6,000 years that this planet has been going, there has been about 14 to 20 billion people who have walked the earth. That's an awful lot of people. That's an awful lot of people. It couldn't be more diverse. Of course, we've got black people, we've got white people, we've got red people, or we've got yellow people. And of course, because of intermarriage, we've got shades in between. I know it's not right for me to say colors and stuff like that, you know, but uh, I, can, I can go. We have all these different uh, varieties of people. You know, it couldn't be more diverse. Since Baba, the Tower of Babel, some 5,000 years ago, nations have grown. Languages have been set up and off these people go into that direction and form a nation. And these people go. And then of course, you've got your splits. So that nation splits up into another nation. And on and on and on the story goes until we have what we have today. We've got tribes and families and uh, people groups and nations. We've got this place, world is full of diversity as far as humanity is concerned. There's billions of us and God has sent his son as one of us. Talk about a needle in an haystack. This is the biggest one. You know, 20 million people. One of them is the Son of God. And to look at Him, He is no different from any of the others. I would say that that's impossible. It's impossible for us to come down on the right one. And here we are tonight. Do you know we put out all our eggs in this one? And he's one of 20 billion. Have we got it right? Have we messed up? It's impossible. Until you see this verse. Because this verse. And verses like it. Through it we can trace his human bloodline. From Eden. To Bethlehem. To Emmanuel Christian Fellowship. And we can go from this place tonight. Assured. That the God who sent his son is Jesus Christ. Amen. That we are trusting in tonight. You know, he, because he is so often referred to as the seed. That's the key word. The seed. 
Can you remember going back right to the very beginning when God spoke to Satan? And this is what he says. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this person that God was about to send, he has to be of the seed of a woman. Which of course is a definite reference to his humanity. Here he is. He's going to be a human being. You know, and from day one, or before that even, God was destined to enter the human race through the means of a woman. He was going to be born just like me and you. God said that at the very beginning of history. He was to be a human being first and foremost. You know, it highlighted his gender. He would bruise Satan's heel and Satan would bruise his heel. So what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for a man. A human man. Now that sort of narrows it down a bit. So instead of having 20 billion to choose from, we probably got about 10. 10 billion people that we can choose from to be this man. But did you notice? It was the seed of the woman that was mentioned. You know, it carries with it the promise of a virgin birth. Because there is no influence of man there at all. You know, Adam wasn't even considered. Wasn't even mentioned. This has got nothing at all to do with Adam. Which means that Christ would never bear the image of Adam. He'd be a human being, but he wouldn't bear the image of Adam. You know, and that's why I read the passage which I, we read at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because Paul contrasts Christ with Adam on so many occasions. You know, later on in this epistle, in chapter 5, is the classic passage of Adam's legacy. Listen to this. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, Sin entered the world, and death through sin. And this death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's Adam's legacy. Christ's remedy. For if by the one man's offence many died, much more. By the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So there is a definite contrast. We have Adam. And we have Jesus Christ. So after God sent his son. As a human being. But without sin. Without sin. If he had been born of Adam. He would have been a sinner. Mm. If Joseph had anything to do with Mary. Before Jesus was born. Jesus would have been born in sin. But no. He didn't take the likeness of Adam. He's separate from him. And that's the great thing about the virgin birth. The, the Christ never partakes in the sinful line of Adam, but does enter the human race. But there's still 10 billion men. But there is a little clue as to a virgin birth. How many of us were actually born of a woman without the man's help? 
know, we also know that Christ is called the seed of Abraham. God's promise of a seed to this man culminated in all the nations of the earth being blessed. You know, Paul explains this to us in Galatians. He says, now to Abraham and his seed with the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one. To you a seed who is Christ. Is Christ. So search is narrowing a little. Because out of those 10 billion people that have populated the earth, or 10 billion men, he has pointed us to a specific part of humanity. And that is Israel. This Messiah who is to come as a man has to be a Hebrew as opposed to a Gentile. In Isaac will you a seed be called? Isn't that great? Because all the Gentiles now they can go you know you can, you know, you can say that uh, you can go now we finish with you and we've got this lot left. Jews. Here they are. But there's millions of them. Countless millions of them. Probably over the years there is billions of them. You know and the problem with uh, Israel, Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob, who was called Israel, had twelve sons. So even in Israel, there are twelve tribes. Which tribe is he going to belong to? How are we going to know? Is he going to be this tribe or that one? No, let's have a look. You see, when Jacob is beginning to fall off the perch, as we could say. He brings our search for Messiah even closer as he calls each of his sons into his presence. And he counsels them, and he blesses them, and he prophesies over them. You know, it's our privilege tonight to eavesdrop and listen to what he says to the Lord. And you read it. You can read it because all his sons, he tells them exactly what's going to happen to them. And he comes to Judah. And here he is, this old man, whispering in the ear of Judah. You know, we're going to get up really close to have a listen. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So it's narrowed down again. Not only is it is he human, not only is he Hebrew, but he is now Judah. So we don't we can discard the other eleven tribes as a non-entity in our search for the real Christ. We haven't got to go to Benjamin or Dan or Naphtali or any of those. We can just concentrate our thoughts on Judah. It's come right down to just this one man. You know, we saw a few Christmases ago. It's not only told us what tribe Christ belonged to, but the actual saying until Shiloh comes gives us an idea of the timing as well. Because that actually happened in Christ's lifetime. When the scepter was given or taken from the Jews. Here he is. 
He's come at just the right time. Just the right time. You know, we haven't got uh, time to explore that, but I refer you to a couple of Christmases ago when we looked at the preparations for the birth, and I got up. You know, of course we know that this is the royal tribe of Israel. The royal tribe of Israel. And Israel's greatest king. Who was he? David. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. David was unique in that he was chosen by God alone. Saul was chosen by men, although God singled him out. They chose him. They saw that he was a man head and shoulders above the rest. We could do with him in the line out on Saturday. <laughs> but with David, no one knew what was going to be. You, not even Samuel. When he went through the sons of Jesse, he said, that's a good one, that's a good one, that's a good one. And God says, no, no, no. And he, and he exhausted the sons of Jesse. And then there was one in the field, the most unlikeliest. And God chose him, the shepherd boy of Bethlehem, David. You know, as we come back to our verse and see that Christ came out of the human race, out of Israel, out of Judah, and lastly, out of the household of King David himself, whose kingdom would last forever, and whose seed would inhabit the throne forever. You know, and if we just remember the words of the herald angel in Luke's account, he will be great, he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And of course we have another little, extra little bit of evidence as to where the birthplace would be. In Micah 5 it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting, are from old and from everlasting Bethlehem of all the world of all the people in the world of all the nations in the world, of all the people in Israel, of all the men in Judah of all the sons of David of all the places in the world Christ was born in Bethlehem as the son of David. You know, the Christmas story is the simplest story of all a child can understand it. But the implications are beyond human comprehension. The prophecies that were fulfilled during those few months are incredible. And the accuracy of God's dealings are astounding. But just one thing. But just think of one thing. I mean. We have a birth that a man did not feature in. Mary had known no man. But Matthew starts his gospel off with the lineage of Joseph. Right back to the son of David, the son of Abraham. So far, so good. We talked about them. Abraham, David. But the last part of that genealogy is a bit of a killer. It's a bit of a killer. You know, you've gone through all those names... You've stood up in a pulpit on a Christmas time and you've read Matthew chapter 1 and you've gone through all those names and your tongue is twisted because you can hardly pronounce them. And when you come to the end of the lineage, you think, well, was it worth it in the end? Because this is what it says. And Jacob begat Joseph, 
the son of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. We got Jake, we got Joseph's lineage, and he had nothing to do with it. In a way, it's a waste of time has gone through all those names. Joseph, married to Mary, who was the mother of Jesus Christ. You see, the lineage, as far as it came down, was broken at Joseph. He is but the husband of Mary, and not the father of Jesus. But Luke includes a genealogy which again states that Joseph was the supposed father of Jesus. But in truth, Luke's lineage is Mary's lineage. You notice it's different. It splits up at a certain point. Joseph's comes down here and Mary's come down here. You know, and Mary was involved in the birth. And therefore Jesus had crown rights to David's throne. Not through Joseph, but through Mary. Jesus is God had his David's son through Mary. But look, look at the, the genealogy. And consider it to be some kind of express train. Because you're whizzing down through the years. All these men. You know, and uh, J- uh, Joseph's side, it went past David like a rocket and ended up with Abraham. But when you come to Mary's genealogy, this express train going down through the, the centuries of history passes David like a rocket, doesn't even stop. Whizzes past Abraham. Whizzes past all those before Abraham and took its destination right at the very beginning. Listen to this. The son of Methuselah, we know him, he's the oldest man in the world. The son of Enoch, we know him, who walked with God and was not. The son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, we know Seth. He's Adam's third child. The son of Adam, the son of God. Isn't that amazing? Adam, the son of God. You see, we've come full circle in our study tonight concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And do you know, Luke, he didn't dream this up. In today's language, he cut and pasted it from somewhere. It's great when you can cut and paste because you aren't going to do any of the typing. So what Luke did, he went into the temple one day and he got the records out. And there was the genealogy of Mary. All the way back to Adam. Jesus, back to Adam. He would have added the Son of God because he wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. Mm. But he also wants us to know that Jesus is human. And here he is. He's the Son of Adam and the Son of God. Do you know that 70 years would go by and the temple would be burned down and those records are gone. They are nowhere. Those genealogies are nowhere. You know, the Jews are waiting for their Messiah. They will never know who he is. 
because there's no records anymore because when Jesus came they were they became redundant and in 30 years after his death they were destroyed isn't that lucky isn't it lucky he came just when he did otherwise we would never have been able to see who he was isn't it lucky that he came when Shiloh came and he came just before the records ran out in other words, out of the 6,000 years that this planet has been revolving, he could only have come in a 50-year span. Isn't that amazing? That's God for you. He wasn't like at all. It's God's planet. Because listen to this. When the fullness, and if you'd been here three Sunday mornings ago, you would have thrilled to you what this verse was telling us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, you born of a woman, Mary the virgin, born under the law, a Jew, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son then an heir of God through Christ. Who is this to? Is this to the Jews only? Well no. Because the express train went straight past Abraham. And he went back to Adam. And we're all in Adam. So the salvation that God has provided for us through the coming of his son in the flesh is for everyone. To the Jew first, yes, granted. And Paul will highlight that in the next couple of verses. But then, to everybody. Amen. And you and I are in the fold. Because we can trace Christ's lineage back to Adam, the son of God. We have the two natures. Humanity, deity. Where is it found? In the manger. In Bethlehem. In the, on the cross of Calvary in the grave on the mount at the throne in my heart in Emmanuel thank God that he is of the seed of David according to the flesh for his name's sake Amen